Hello, and welcome to Haunted and Historic, where we talk about houses. Abandoned, historic, and sometimes haunted. I'm Courtney, and I will be your host. I really like this idea of talking about the things I read and watched because not only does it help me stay on target with my goals of keeping the books and shows that I watch in the spooky house-related realm, but I want to be here to help give you suggestions of shows you might not have heard about or to add a book to your own TBR pile. As you'll clearly see based on my list, I didn't exactly know at the time that I'd be doing this or I definitely would have added some more fitting selections, but I promise there are a few good ones. My entry into 2022 was rough to say the least. I got really sick a few days after Christmas and it took me a solid two weeks before I felt back to normal. As soon as I felt better, I was determined to jump back into life and enjoy every healthy day because it felt like I had been living under a dark storm cloud all month. So one day I picked up this book that my mom got me for Christmas titled, I Work in a Public Library by Gina Sheridan. This was the best book I could have possibly picked up. After being sick and after being in a months-long reading slump, reading this book was exactly what I needed. I created this new habit of drinking my coffee while reading a book every morning while my son did his screen time because otherwise I wouldn't be able to read until bedtime and I have other stuff to do then, like this. This book made me miss the complete absurdity that is working in a public library. This book is a compilation of experiences the author had in her career, and I found myself laughing and nodding and then yelling at my husband to listen to the passage I read and then retell my own similar experience. Working in a library is nothing like most people expect. It's so overly glamorized and romanticized to the point that people genuinely think you sit around all day reading books and drinking coffee. It's actually a lot of doing inner system work on a computer while members of the public come up and ask you questions. And the questions are about absolutely anything, how to file taxes, using Craigslist to get a ride to the next state over, filming locations for this old cowboy show in the 80s, you name it. Over 50% is simply showing people how to use the computer or their own iPad. I was not prepared for how often I was not asked for reading suggestions. All I wanted to do was reader's advisory, but many people know what they want or just want to give you their suggestions instead at least in my experience. As unexpected as the work is, it is more lovely than I had ever imagined when I started. You build relationships with the patrons and you're there to serve, sometimes as a therapist, sometimes as an amateur IT tech or computer teacher, sometimes just to locate a book on a shelf. There is never a dull day in a library. Even just talking about it makes my heart ache for wanting to go back. I will find literally any excuse to talk about libraries. Before we move on, I want to give a rating to each book. In regards to I Work in a Public Library, five stars easy. It's insightful, fun, and the perfect book to read all in one sitting, especially if you've never had the opportunity to work in a library for yourself. So I'll briefly skim over the next title since it's not exactly on brand with the podcast. I read A Coat of Yellow Paint, which is a book I picked up for $3 at my local thrift store. It's basically a collection of unpublished blog posts from this woman, Taza, whom I'd never heard of before picking up the book. She talks about her life and what it's like to be married with five children living in a walk-up apartment in New York City with five kids. It wasn't anything new or amazing, but it was still very enjoyable for me as a mom who struggles having only one child, so I gave it three and a half stars. The last book of January was The House with 16 Handmade Doors 
by Henry Petrosky. This, like many of the books that I read, was nonfiction. You know when you see a book and just by looking at the title and the way the cover looks, you just know you're going to love it? I had that feeling from the first time I saw this book, and I could not have been more wrong. I don't want to bash this book, but it was not for me. The author is an engineer, and his writing reflects that. There was no warmth or personality that made me feel invested in the story or the author. It felt like a long prologue to an instruction manual. I had such high hopes for this book, which is why I feel so let down. I had to give it two and a half stars. We'll go ahead and skip the movie section for January since I don't really remember anything that I watched. In February, I needed something to move on to since the last book was so dry, so I picked a book I've been holding on to for a while, and that is A $500 House in Detroit by Drew Phillip. This book was everything I wanted and everything I hoped it'd be, and more. I was incessantly talking about this book with anyone who was in close proximity to me, I went to coffee with my mom and I talked about it. I talked about it over dinner at my in-laws. I couldn't stop talking about it and still I refuse to. I want to buy copies of it just to put at little free libraries around my town. I want people to read it, so please consider putting it on your TBR list. That's to be read, just in case you didn't know. I'm interested to know if others of you listening have a topic that you've always been fascinated with. For years, like since I can remember, I've been interested in learning about Detroit, about the history, the rise and fall, more so the fall and the aftermath. This book was a great introduction into so much history regarding Detroit that I've never been aware of. I've since purchased two books solely about the history of Detroit so that I can learn more about it. This book is written by Drew Phillip, who is a 24-year-old white college student when the book begins. He immerses himself in the community in Detroit and begins making friends and staying with locals until he buys his own $500 dilapidated Queen Anne Victorian house in East Detroit. This book is history mixed with prevalent social issues, mixed with old house restoration, mixed with self-discovery, and it is just the most profound book I've encountered in a long time. I loved him as a narrator, and I was always interested to read what he was going to write about next. I liked that in some parts you can find him a little unlikable, but in a likable way. It felt very self-aware and I appreciated his passages where he would write about what he said or how he responded to someone, knowing that it sounded immature or selfish. I think it's easy for people to take those things out and paint themselves more perfect than they are, but he doesn't shy away from that honesty and I loved it. His love for his city and his community is overwhelming and having that insight from a complete outsider is unparalleled. I actually want to do a separate review just for this book so I can quote all the passages I loved. As you can guess, five stars. After reading A $500 House in Detroit, I could feel a bit of a book hangover coming on, so I couldn't bring myself to get invested in another complex story. So because of that, I chose a comfort book that was a second read for me, and that was The Magnolia Story by Chip and Joanna Gaines. I absolutely love them. I love Fixer Upper. I love seeing them with their five kids and their farm life, and I just needed to immerse myself in their world. It's a super short book, very light and fast to read, and it just goes into depth more about their beginnings, how they met and started dating, and a lot about their house journey. I loved it even more the second time reading it. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone unless you've watched Fixer Upper or really know them as a couple, but if you do, I highly recommend it. It is a warm and cozy, uplifting, and inspirational story. They are my comfort couple that whenever I get anxiety, they help me focus on the present and the simple things in life when my brain starts to spiral, and I really appreciate them. 
overall four and a half out of five stars. After that is when we move into more of the house related things that I read and watched. I was completely ready to get back into my heavy topics, so I jumped right into Forensics, How Bugs, Blood, and DNA Tell Us About Crimes by Val McDermott. I was kind of thrown off at first that it's written by a journalist from the UK. As someone who lives in the US, if I'm going to read a book about the criminal justice system or forensic science, I want it to be written by someone who lives here because our systems, our rules, our laws, everything is different than other countries. However, I quickly was impressed because Val wrote this book in a way that is very worldly. She mentions cases from the UK often, but she includes at least 40% from all across the world. She writes about the origination of certain forensic practices and what offices opened first and when they were used and expanded to other countries. She writes about the first time DNA fingerprints were ever used to convict someone of murder and how that technology changed the field and showed what was possible. I worried it would be a bit dry even for someone who is interested in forensic science, but she keeps it really concise when needed and elaborates when needed. I loved the pacing, and I would highlight my favorite topics after reading the chapter. Of the chapters, my favorites were fire scene investigations, toxology, fingerprinting, anthropology, facial reconstruction, and the courtroom. This is a book where you'll want to annotate as you go along, and you'll definitely find yourself asking people around you if they knew that the top of a matchstick is called a diatome, and that each brand makes them uniquely, so that when the match burns, all that remains is the top diatome piece, and you can use it to see what brand it is. I enjoyed the arson chapter way more than I expected, and I ended up buying another book about arson right after reading this. A solid four and a half star read for me. So moving on to the shows I watched in February, starting with Fixer Upper and Magnolia Table, which I won't go into because you know what it is, and if you don't, I highly recommend both of them. Magnolia Network is on Discovery+, Plus, so I went through the list of shows and found this show called Restored. I really like the host Brett Waterman and his vision for the houses he works on. I think a lot of people in the home renovation world are like, oh, I love historic homes and keeping all the charm and details, and then they go in and rip everything up and paint it white. He really fights to keep the historic details, whether it's keeping the original floors or adding details that are so spot on that they never cross my mind. He even researches the house in the past to see how it's changed throughout the years and if there are features that no longer exist that he can bring back. The first episode I watched was season one, episode 10, featuring a gorgeous 1928 Spanish colonial mansion. In the dining room were these gorgeous hardwood wainscoting details on the bottom two-thirds of the wall and a simple beige color paint above on the top third of the wall. He wanted to fix it up so it looked fresh and new to the family, and what he did was just a work of art, literally. I don't want to give anything away because I strongly suggest you watch for yourself. After that, I decided to finally watch episode 7 of Homework, specifically because they renovate a house on 25th Street in Ogden, the Andrew J. Warner house. I followed the owners, Sean and Taylor, under the handle Meet the Gabers on Instagram for a while, and I've always loved their house. They were actually on the historic house walking tour in September of 2021, so I got to walk through and see the entire house, and it was incredible. Then I saw them post about their episode on Instagram, and I knew I had to watch it. First off, I thought it was kind of odd that the description of the episode didn't say anything about the Andrew J. Warner house they renovate. The description is the Victorian room, which I quickly realized is about the host's own house. In case you're like me and didn't know, the show is hosted by Candace and Andy Meredith of Nephi, Utah. 
During the show, they're renovating a 20,000 square foot schoolhouse for their family, while also renovating other houses in Utah. I absolutely love what they did to both their own house and the house of Sean and Taylor, but if I'm being completely honest, I thought it was a little disrespectful to not have any information about the renovation in the description. The show is 75% their own house, and then 25% renovating Sean and Taylor's. I wasn't expecting to see so much of their own projects, and obviously that's the point of the show, but I guess I just feel like the people they're featuring were an afterthought. Chip and Joanna make everything about their client, so I guess I expected something more that speed. I wouldn't have any issues if the series was just them working on their own house. Then it would make more sense than squeezing in another renovation project and then not giving it the airtime it deserves, so this one was just okay. Finishing it up with a little true crime with a dash of old houses. Next, I watched a documentary on Rebecca Zahau. I heard about this case years ago from my sister-in-law who lived in San Diego at the time that it happened, and I was so perplexed, as I'm sure everyone is when they hear the overview. Without delving into all the details, Rebecca Zahau was found hanging nude from the second-story balcony of her boyfriend's mansion on Coronado Island. Her wrists and ankles were bound with red rope, and a shirt was stuffed into her mouth. This came just two days after a fall left her boyfriend's six-year-old son in critical condition in the hospital, and that's just a minor overview. I spent a lot of time after watching the show, not even looking up the case, but looking up the mansion where this incident took place. I actually have an upcoming episode planned to go into more detail about the mansion itself. If you don't know anything about the case, I beg you to watch a documentary, watch some YouTube videos, I only really watch Stephanie Harlow on YouTube, but I know Bailey Sarian has a video about this case, and so does Kendall Ray. This was such an interesting case to discuss with my husband because at the beginning, you think you know how you feel, but the more you learn and hearing my husband make some points he made, you begin to get more conflicted and see things from a different vantage point. The documentary was two hours long, and it probably took us close to four hours to watch it just because we kept pausing it to discuss our theories with each other. Does anyone else do this? I feel like it would be super weird to just sit through two hours of information and then try to construct a discussion at the very end. No, I need to verbalize all the thoughts and theories as they happen, and thank God I married someone who is the exact same. If you're familiar with the case or choose to look into it, please send me your theories. Wow, you guys, we made it. Thank you so much for listening this far. If you haven't followed me on Instagram already, please go over and do that. I absolutely love talking to you guys in messages. Feel free to tag me in what you're reading or watching this month. If you've loved or hated anything I mentioned, let me know. After all, community and connection is what this is all about. Thank you so much for being here. I'll talk to you in the next one.